tune into some tunes. Our mission at Note by Note is to educate you on the who, what, when, where, whys, and hows about music. I'm Vaishnavi, and welcome to the show. Music, no matter what genre, tells a story. It always has and always will. Last episode, we talked a little bit about hip-hop and how its unique urban sound comes from its background of Black and Latino neighborhoods in the Bronx. But the history of hip-hop has a history of its own. Virtually all modern forms of traditionally African-American music, from disco to hip-hop and rap to even broader genres like rock and roll and contemporary R&B, all derive from soul, a genre that solidified its place in American music history in the 1950s. Soul has an incredible history of coming together from splinters of a struggling African-American community, forming a strong, cohesive, and proud whole, then splintering off again to give birth to many different and diverse genres. Thanks to the sense of community it created among African-Americans, as well as the popularity it received from the general American public, soul music also became an important pillar in the civil rights movement. So, what else is there to discover about this revolutionary genre? We're about to find out. Soul is a very unique musical child. It was born primarily out of gospel and blues, which could be respectively referred to as the sacred and the profane. Gospel music was music for the Lord, with hymns repeated by the lead singer and then the audience in an interactive call-and-response fashion taken from the black oral tradition that American slaves would use to keep their homeland culture alive. Blues clashed with gospel magnificently. It focused on agitation, depression, and the struggles of freed African Americans during and following the Reconstruction Era, a period of U.S. history focusing on reintegrating the United States and determining the legal status of African Americans after the Civil War. Relationship woes came along with the downcast tone on literally everything else in blues music, and sexual themes remained dominant in the genre. Make you so the narrative structure of blues had a baby with the musical techniques of gospel, and soul was born. Except the term had already been used for a while. Even before the height of soul's popularity in the mid-1960s, the term soul had been used among African-American musicians to describe the black experience in the United States. Soul was seen as essence, the core of one's being. The musicians were sharing with the world what being black meant to them, but white America wasn't ready to listen until soul music came along. It was only after the genre caught on with the white population that the term soul really took off. And it's a reminder of how soul's evolution was in part an adaptation for survival of black culture during the rise of post-World War II consumerism. Gone were the days of the Great Depression, and people wanted to show off their wealth through material goods and brand new trends, like poodle skirts and transistor radios. The more you had, the more prosperous you were deemed. 
And yet, poverty rates were well into the 20 and 30 percent range throughout the 50s and early 60s, and more than half of this part of the population was black. Unrest grew as the civil rights movement slowly began to gain momentum. Soul musicians knew their music had to survive in consumerist America to do the same. Aretha Franklin is the most important female soul artist and arguably the most important soul artist in general to come out of soul's rise to popularity in the 60s. And Respect is arguably her signature song. It's a call for respect demanded by black people in the civil rights movement, and it represents so much about the spirit of soul. Even from a structural viewpoint, there's the call and response backup singers emphasizing Franklin's call for respect. And if you listen a little closer here, Franklin did something brilliant with the way she re-authored the song, which was originally written by Otis Redding, often known as the King of Soul and a pioneer of the genre in his own right. What the counterculture of the 60s needed then, however, was a woman. A black woman who could serve as a cultural icon for the civil rights movement. Aretha reworked respect to a black female perspective, both reinvigorating the civil rights movement and encouraging black women to demand equal treatment as both black men and white women, instead of being cast aside as a double standard. Aretha reworked respect structurally, too. She added a touch of blues influence to the song through B-flats, a note commonly used within blues. Just the opening tune alone from Otis's version. version. Makes so much more of a difference. She also transposed the entire tune to C major, one of the most popular chords in 50s and 60s pop music. basically sealing its fate as a hit song of the era. Respect's rise to popularity has so much to account for Aretha's rendition of it. See, by the late 50s, Elvis Presley had already popularized rock and roll, which derived from the sounds of black soul music in Memphis, Tennessee. And his white audience was now much more interested in consuming this style of black music. What's important to note is that throughout the history of soul music, the political circumstances of black people made it difficult for them to receive any prominent credit for musical styles that they pioneered, even with black music at an all-time high on billboard charts in the 60s and 70s. So soul was now popular, but it never would have flown its way up the charts without the help of record labels, namely the big three, Motown, Atlantic, and Stax. Now, out of all of these, Motown was undoubtedly the most revolutionary one, as it was an African-American-owned label, and soul music ended up interchangeable with the phrase Motown sound. Between 1960 to 1969, Motown ended up achieving 79 records up at the Billboard Hot 100's Top 10 Songs. 79! Within 10 years! 
Some artists under the Motown label included the Supremes, the Four Tops, and the Jackson Five. The term Motown sound refers in particular to the frequent use of strings and horns, complex vocal changes, and a steady four-beat tempo, all showcased in hits like I Want You Back by the Jackson Five. The rise of soul to pop music status set up the perfect stage for integration in an era of cultural divide. At the time, Jim Crow laws still prohibited black people and white people from using the same services, going to the same schools, even using the same drinking fountains, but everyone knows about segregation. What most people don't know is how the very nature of soul music challenged it. Soul is by nature an interactive medium, encouraging its audience to sing along to the call and response lines in the music. And once black musicians gained white attention, the privilege of white America gave soul the boost it needed to reach stardom. Smokey Robinson, the founder and frontman of the Motown group The Miracles, recalls Motown's cultural impact. We were making history. I recognize the bridges that we crossed, the racial problems and barriers that we broke down with music. I would come to the South in the early days of Motown and the audiences would be segregated. Then they started to get the Motown music and we would go back and the audiences were integrated and the kids were dancing together and holding hands. I said Georgia Oh Georgia No peace I That's Georgia's state anthem, Georgia On My Mind, by Ray Charles, who's often cited as a pioneer in soul and responsible for bringing the genre into mainstream through a string of hits in the 1950s, like I've Got a Woman. She sings a loving just for me. Oh, she loves me so tenderly. I got a woman. Georgia On My Mind, however, was his first number one hit on Billboard's Top 100 and led to his rise to stardom. After being scheduled to perform in the song's namesake state in the city of Augusta, however, he canceled after finding out the ballroom would be segregated, with whites in front and the black audience sitting in the back. This was huge for the civil rights movement and the fight towards integration with Charles only setting foot in Augusta again in 1963, when the concert was desegregated. Soul and its popularity amongst the white crowd made it destined to be used as a tool for black liberation. Interestingly enough, or perhaps expectedly, white Americans ended up wanting to emulate the sound of soul themselves, leading to a subgenre known as blue-eyed soul. Much of these groups were British-based, with acts like Tom Jones, The Who, and others eventually making their way to America by the late 60s. The evolution of soul music as it expanded its influence from small groups of black performers to something larger, national, and eventually international mirrors perfectly the growth of the American civil rights movement. And that is not a coincidence. Racial integration through music showed the changing environment of the United States as black cries for social integration of race could no longer be silenced. The most important aspect in the political growth of Seoul was community. 
Seoul was built off of community and eventually gave back to it as well. Black churches had a huge influence on both the civil rights movement and Seoul music. The churches hosted meetings for rallies and marches, provided a base of spiritual, moral, and financial support for civil rights leaders, and were the home of gospel music, one of the predecessors of Seoul. Black Christianity's tight-knit relationship with politics ultimately made it much different from the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, or WASP, culture prevalent in the United States at the time. Church could be separated from state for the white Christian population because they had the luxury of being able to do so. The black churches housed a population that had to care about politics to survive. Closeness of the community brought forth the powerful political impact of churches in the civil rights movement. This is why white popularity was important in Seoul, and why Seoul could be used as a pillar of support for the civil rights movement. As Seoul ventured further and further from church walls, lyrical content became less religious in nature, and the commercialization of Seoul could very much be seen as a tactical movement as well as an attempt of cultural preservation. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the organization originally led by Martin Luther King Jr. that spearheaded the famous march on Washington to outlaw segregation, often struggled financially. Segregation laws at the time limited access to banking, credit, and financial institutions and services. The movement, however, was kept alive and well through Seoul. Andrew Young, executive director of the SCLC, recalls that almost every time we needed money, there were two people we could always count on, Aretha Franklin and Harry Belafonte. They would get together and have a concert, and that would put us back on our feet. Seoul continued to be a prominent fighting power in the civil rights movement, and efforts eventually paid off with abolition of racial segregation with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and abolition of discrimination in voting with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Everything seemed to be going in the right direction, until... April 4th, 1968. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated by a white supremacist. It led to a wave of civil unrest that was already aggravated by high unemployment, poor housing, and voter suppression among the African-American community. But King's assassination was the tipping point. The riots were collectively known as the Holy Week Uprising. It was called such to evoke imagery of Christ using a whip of cords to cleanse the temple of money chargers and merchants. It was only after the fear of unlawful crisis that Congress finally pushed through the 1968 Civil Rights Act, which prohibited discrimination in housing based on race. D.C. became the center of the chaos after a failed march turned into a riot. Graffiti made its first major appearance in the context of black activism, with phrases like respect existence or expect resistance. It was from the heart of urban rioting and the existence of soul as an already powerful tool for resistance that the genre began to splinter into new ones. It was out of resistance to police brutality and the American government's attempts to quell any black resistance and ignore any black suffering that hip-hop was born. At the same time, discotheques popped up in the early 70s by marrying Latin rhythms with African percussion and quickly became popular among the black LGBT community. Genres like funk and rock and roll already made the split from soul music in the late 50s and 60s, but no one thought it would foretell the further splintering of the genre. 
The effective end of the Seoul era coincides with America's shift to neoconservatism in 1980, with Ronald Reagan's election. Poverty and incarceration rates of black people increased. Counterculture effectively went underground in order to survive. The once popular Seoul, the black 50s and 60s sound that dominated American music culture, was now struggling underneath in the Bronx. Blue-eyed Seoul started to take its place more prominently. This white subset of the genre reached an all-time high popularity in the 1980s, mostly due to the success of American duo Hall and Oates, with hits like I Can't Go For That. Techniques like backing vocals with call and response and a focus on pronounced rhythm helped keep soul alive in 80s pop. What Hall and Oates did was invite a sort of renaissance of blue-eyed soul, soon leading in a train of artists like Phil Collins, Culture Club, and the artist of what was quite possibly the most successful blue-eyed soul album of the entire decade, George Michael and his debut album Faith. So Much of the album's songs, like this one, One More Try, drew heavy influence from the powerful and raw vocals found in Seoul. It became the first album ever by a white artist to reach number one of the top R&B and hip-hop albums. And while this was a game-changer and undoubtedly meant Seoul music still lived on, an important discussion arose about whether Seoul still contained its genuine black and political roots, or if the genre had become gentrified, packaged in commercialized white vocals so its listeners would not have to worry about the difficult past integral to the birth and rise of Seoul. In 1989, directly as a result of Michael's 1988 win of Album of the Year, Ebony Magazine, a black-owned news source on the entertainment industry, published the article, Blue-Eyed Soul, Are Whites Taking Over Rhythm and Blues? The discussion of popular soul's race switch in the 1980s needs to consider the way the music industry has evolved over time as well. Terry Rossi, Billboard Magazine's black chart manager at the time, explains, Many black stations around the country now have white consultants on their staff. Airplay has increased for white artists while the changed format has slowed down the new black music. The article consulted many artists, both black and white alike, and led to the general consensus that the future of the genre depended on collaboration as a unifying force. The black roots of the genre are something that cannot be forgotten, and while certain aspects of music, like call and response techniques or pronounced rhythm, do not belong to a certain group, certain groups can give meaning to these aspects when putting them together. To argue that music is a powerful, impactful force, and then ignore the ways in which it was built to how it sounds today, is a damaging mindset. The first ever hip-hop MCs started off spinning soul records, however. Black music was on a new, uncertain, yet exhilarating experimental horizon. But the black origins of soul would not be forgotten anytime soon. Now, this would be the part where I would say that's the end of this episode, but in light of recent events that happen to coincide with this episode's recording, 
I would just like to say that the most important aspect of history is what we can take away from it for present day. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr. himself, a riot is the language of the unheard. Uplifting black voices against police brutality back in the 1960s is what ultimately led to the passing of civil rights acts. And as we've seen, the story is far from over just yet. These are uncertain times, but we can help uplift black voices even if we aren't black ourselves. Especially if we aren't black ourselves. Listen to what black people have to say on this matter. Donate to bail funds and Black Lives Matter movements if you can, and if you can't, share the donation links. Thousands of people were arrested in each major protest of the civil rights movement, because in order to change the status quo, one must first go against it. Right now, the black community needs allies more than ever. Black lives matter. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. All sound clips used in the show are for nonprofit educational purposes in compliance with the Fair Use section of the Copyright Act. Thanks for tuning in, tell your friends what you've learned, and come back next time to Note by Note.